Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a returning guest. We talked back before the pandemic started, so it's been almost a year and a half. We talked in March. I have a two-hour program with him to split up our last conversation into two parts, so you can go back and listen to that. His name is Visigoth, and for me, he's really one of the early greats, one of the people who was doing interviews and podcasting really at the beginning, you know, maybe really even before I did a first show with him, which I think was 2010, 2011, almost 10 years ago. But uh, he's interviewed people like Dave McGowan and done so many other shows. I think the first one, the show that he had was called Grassy Knoll based on JFK, then Beyond Grassy Knoll and uh, some other ones that he can go through. But uh, we're just going to kind of reconnect, talk about some old kind of his old podcasting years and, and kind of bring it up forward. Right very close to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and, and we've gone through COVID. So we can talk more about that. So Keith Hansen, are you there? Yeah. Uh, the original show was called from beyond the grass, you know, okay. by the person who actually started it. Um, he was someone I, with whom I worked at the library. Uh, his handle was uh, Harry Spencer. So what he did is he, we did one half hour shows, a week, let's see, I think it would be like in like March 2000, 2002, that would be it. And uh, eventually I took it to the two AM stations in town and did it that way. And all this time we did record on Radio For All. Um, so so I, I had no hand in naming it. Uh, Harry named it From the Grassy Knoll. I had a column in a local newspaper and their editor, for whatever reason, named that column from the grassy knoll. So it was just a serendipity or a bad luck, whatever you want to call it, that that's how this whole thing started. And um, I was on the AM stations for quite some time. And then after that, uh, I continued what we, we what we call now podcasts. Right. So you started super early and you kind of did uh, investigative journalism, parapolitics, really from the very beginning, right? Yes. Absolutely. And, and can you talk about how that developed really from the beginning? And, and you had some great guests on too, and did some great investigations. You did one about Lincoln and, and so many of those that, that I remember now. Well, the thing is in the very beginning, everybody gets beguiled by the secret societies and such. And so, so did we, and we kept it along going on those lines, except that I am a Christian. I'm just going to go so far with it. Um, and then later on, when we went on to uh, the AM stations, it got to be a little bit more of a, uh, I guess, a community kind of thing in the sense that we interviewed people who had, I mean, it was more Gellens, you know, lost children. Uh, we, we did some stuff that was live from uh, when Katrina hit New Orleans um, and, and that sort of thing. Afterwards, uh, when we left the uh, AM stations, because they were sold out and, you know, things are sold in the same as they were before you, you know, before the sale. Um, I started doing podcasts and then I got really down on, um, truthfully, sadly, uh, sadly, um, you know, the whole nine 11 group, right. I mean, there were so many frauds in there. It was, it was like beating back ants because they were just, you know, mucking up the whole thing. And it was not a very, it was a very distasteful thing to do, but 
you know, that's the way it has to be because you realize barbarians are inside the gate and that's what happened, you know, with, with us. So you, and you kind of went out on your own after the beginning, right? So then you kind of started yeah. your own thing. Yeah, it was, um, Harry Spencer stayed with me to, uh, start the show, uh, platform the show. And, uh, he, he can still be heard on shows that we did. He took more of a back seat. Uh, when we were on the AM stations, they were they were twin stations, WDCF and WZHR, Dade City and Zephyr Hills, uh, Florida. Um, and I'm not really sure why that happened. I, I think I just felt like I, I don't know. I mean, I, that he just kind of lost interest in it. I, I wasn't sure. But um, everybody loved him because he was the one that busted my balls and, and, and really played uh, uh the jokester to my straight man thing, which I really wasn't used to, but everybody loved it and it did work. But, uh, you know, he faded away. And then after that was over with, then I started getting serious about uh, some other problems because to be honest with you, I had to be, my goal was in the very beginning to find out the way things really were. And I got distracted and I did, uh, you know, shows that people like to see, but I don't, you know, or hear. And, um, I really wasn't comfortable with it. So I had to haul it back in and, and, and head toward where I wanted to go. And that is what, what are we doing? What is going on here? And what's the real deal? Right. I mean, you just accrued so much experience too, during all of those years, all of those interviews, some of which can still be found. I think you turned into the Olympic files, right? So it went beyond grassy knoll, Visigoth, Olympic. I mean, you, I mean, we've talked about that in the last interview as well, but, it just like you really were one of the early ones who got accrued all of that knowledge and was able to distill it. Would you, would you share kind of what your conclusions were? Well, I, I'll tell you, um, with regard to nine 11, that was very key. Um, at the time that that event happened, I actually was in Northeastern New Jersey. I was eight miles across the river from what was going on that day. And it was a spectacular day. But I, I, when I went up there to visit the old hood, uh, it was my want to uh, go ahead and keep my cell phone in my pocket and just walk around. And I had no idea what happened until I went to visit the friend of, of my uh, late mother to see how she was doing. And she said, oh, isn't it awful? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she brought me into her living room and I saw the, t- the uh, towers crumble and I said, to myself, that's a controlled demolition. Um, The other thing that's interesting was is that on my way up there, I was walking along this very beautiful tree-lined street because it was early September. I mean, it was still summer. And um, I heard this roar. And Teterboro Airport is very near where we are. A lot of rock groups would fly into Teterboro in their, like, dilapidated, like, whatever they were, (laughs) planes. Right. And then just ferried across to uh, uh, the Meadowlands. Uh, so you were used to planes coming in, but this was was seen big and had a deafening roar. It wasn't a jet uh, because it wasn't that fast. And the thing is, is that I looked to my south down the same street, and it was a gentleman that was out in the middle of the street looking up too. So I looked up, I looked at him, he looked at me, and I'm like, man some plane is in trouble and it's going to probably try to drop at um, uh, Teterboro. 
but that was not the case later on to find that most likely was. And I, I don't care how people think about this. I don't want to know. But th whatever that second plane was that hit the towers, it was probably that. And a listener to the show on that very same day was down in Sea Caucus, which would be also in the flight path, and was walking between two two um, warehouses and heard it, but looked up and couldn't see it. Not that it wasn't there. It was just that you missed your opportunity. And I have to admit, I didn't see it, but he heard the same roar. And there was video on YouTube that showed a plane that was coming around from the north, making a U-turn and heading for the south side of the towers. So, I mean, eventually I came to the conclusion of what I heard was the second plane. Um, so you were really right there in the middle of it. I mean, pretty close. Teterboro, by the way, was where Epstein got arrested too, uh, 2019. Sorry. <laughs> Which is a whole nother impression on your story. I mean, that's a whole nother subject. But I mean, that you were there in 9-11 is pretty incredible. What else? What happened next? Well, also, what's interesting is, is that um, I believe JFK Jr. Uh, wanted to fly out of Teterboro. Uh, he was not an experienced pilot. And, uh, and chose Essex. And my pilot friend at the time told me that on Friday nights, there are a lot of pilots hanging around just for people who want to go someplace and may not be instrumented to, uh, to, to fly at night or in bad weather. And, and that's what happened. I mean, JFK left from, uh, from Essex. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, whatever, whatever happened overhead, was certainly not a plane in distress, which I thought it was. It was most likely um, a commercial airliner that was now starting to descend and was ready to make its uh, quite a U-turn into uh, the towers. Um, but but I got to tell you, I mean, honestly, I did not see a thing. The guy that was, you know, a couple of hundred yards away from me didn't see a thing. But we both heard the same thing. And the listener that was down in the Sea Caucus heard the same thing. So anybody can make anything that they want out of that. I'm not going to get into the uh, argument about were their planes, weren't their planes. Well, something knocked them down. And uh, whether the holograms or not, I don't care. The point is that, William, the whole bit about 9-11 was who's responsible and why did it happen? Right. And who's responsible and why did it happen? Do you want to answer that? Yeah. We do it to ourselves all the time. There are three books that I think are absolutely outstanding about the anatomy of a self-inflicted wound. They would be Robert Stinnett's Day of Deceit. He was a seaman in Hawaii at that time. Um, got information that was uh, eventually released. That book came out, I think, in 2002. There's also a book in 1954 written by Rear Admiral Robert Theobald called The Final Secret of Pearl will give you a lot of insight on what happened that day. And not to, you know, not to look, overlook what happened with the Maine. That's another situation, the Gulf of Tonkin. That's another right. situation. But another great book with full of footnotes and endnotes, which are, are absolutely um, astounding, was Colin Simpson's Lusitania. Now, all three of those events had to do with the start of a war, and we did it to ourselves. 
So with regard to 9-11, I don't care if the Jews did it. I don't care if the Arabs did it. I don't care if the lowest Loblovians did it. But that could not have been pulled off without a stand down in this country. We let it happen to ourselves. I don't care if Bush was in office or Clinton was in office. I don't care about any of that kind of stuff. That's what happened. Right. Didn't you do a whole series on the Lusitania at one point? I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I did. I did a series on Lusitania. Um, uh, Simpson got his hands on, you know, previously uh, held back information. The stuff that he did show in his book was not redacted. And I'll just give you one example to let you know where this is going. The Germans had sent via their State of Department warnings for passengers in the United States not to board the Lusitania because the Lusitania was carrying stores and ammunition for Germany's enemy, which would be Britain. Okay. Now, in the, in the cruiser war uh, records, um, that's that's a foul. Okay, you don't do that. Which made the Lusitania a prime object. Now, what bothered me about this, and again, folks can read that book for themselves, is that Lord Fisher and Churchill were both kind of sharing the naval duties. Um, I think the Germans sent 50 advertisements to be placed in uh, American dailies of, 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 you know, some kind of import like the New York times. Hmm. However, they all got strangled except one. So Wilson killed 49 of the 50 and just said, do not board the uh, Lusitania because it's a ship carrying stores and, and ammunition for the enemy. Right. So it becomes a vessel of war, not a, uh, you know, public ship. It, it no longer becomes a public conveyance. It becomes, right. yes, so, something that, you know, as a, um, what do you want to call it? A, uh, a vehicle of, um, of the military, military ship, really. Right there. All right. So um, 49 of those did not make it. Uh, Churchill, <clears throat> excuse me, strangled them all. And they let the people get on board. Uh, when the ship sailed, as it was passing underneath Ireland, headed for, uh, for I think it was going to Liverpool, I'm not sure. But as it was going beneath Ireland and England, um, the protection for it was called back. There's an argument as to whether Churchill did it or Fisher did it. You can make your own conclusions, but the ship now was without any kind of support. And the Germans were laying for it. Now, the Germans fired one torpedo. And this was fair game. This is what they were trying to say. And they were right. It was fair game. They shot one torpedo. It was more in the aft. But there were two explosions. And they said, we did not shoot a second torpedo. And they produced evidence of such. So the point was, was it sabotage from within? Or did the stores, uh, the munitions rather, um, ignite? Because the plane was was not a, I'm sorry, the ship was not at all uh, sunk. It was listing, but it was not sunk. Hmm. And then after that, they called back any kind of rescue service. So here you go. So you, here you got the uh, the ship now, not, not sinking, uh, able to be rescued, and none of it happened. 
Right, and that was the whole thing about the English were trying to get the U.S. in the war. They needed an excuse. Um, who's Who was the interest of this Lusitania going down was really the British Empire at that time. So they were the one who's really benefited. The, the, the Americans are outraged. It's a huge public outrage, right? All these civilians go down, so it plays right into the hands of the warmongers. It, Again, it did. I mean, it took a year or so, but I mean, that was the cry then, you know, you know like remember the Lusitania. And the Germans, you know, laid out everything they could. I'm not a Nazi sympathizer, but they were within their rights to do what they did. And it was almost like they were challenged by the Americans to see if they would do that. Um, and of course, the Americans didn't care because they allowed the passengers to go across on the Lusitania. And obviously, most of them were lost. It was a it was a tragic, tragic event that involved, you know, babies. And I mean, it's, it's bad as you can think of. It was. So that sat there for a while, but that was used as, um, I guess, a, a rally cry because really we had nothing to do with the Germans. I mean, right. our situation was like we were, we were allies with Great Britain. And I asked a friend of mine one time, well, what the hell did they ever do for us? <laughs> he Not much. Of- yeah. No. Nothing. They brought I mean, down the DC in 1812. So there was that whole situation, Revolutionary War. But yeah. Not, not really that much. Um, and that was interesting. It cruelly came to the U.S. to get the U.S. into war with Germany, uh, what, 1914. So there's there's all these ties into the Lusitania. Yeah, uh, uh, Crowley, Crowley was on one side of the yeah, faction, without a doubt. Um, and, of course, there were certain, obviously, German sympathizers all over New York. Right. Especially because shipping was was the way to go in those days. You didn't have planes, so that was, was all about shipping. Right. And so you would hear about all intrigues about what was going on in the docks in New York. They even got the mafia involved, especially in the Second World War. Right. Uh, to actually ferret out, you know, access uh, uh, agents. So it, it's a, it's a wild time, and um, you know you, you couldn't tell who was who by their uniforms. <laughs> Right. No, it really was. I mean, very, New York was really something else during that time. What we and you and I talked about Verrek, right? I think you mentioned Verrek, V I E R E C K, who was a German yeah. sympathizer. Yeah. 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 So the Lusitania is just one of many. So Lusitania, the Maine, which is the Spanish American. So these huge events were these very well known entities, ships at the time, right, were there, the, like, just like you said, very important. So these kind of vessels are going down. Tonkin, it just happens every 20 years almost. Well, the thing is, is there's, there is a false flag trigger, and I'm, I'm expecting another one. In fact, I, I put much stock in the book that was written by Brzezinski uh, in 1994 uh, called The Grand Chessboard. Now, that's a riff off uh, Sir Halford McKinder's uh, extrapolation, if you will, in about 1909, about who would win, whoever would win the last war and and gain the last empire would do so by uh, obtaining the heartland, which really is the Ukraine and the Slavic, no, not the Slavic states, but the Muslim states that are above it. The reason why I bring that up is because in 1994, there wasn't really anything going on. I read, I read the book in 2002. Mm-hmm. So Brzezinski writes it, and if nobody knows who Brzezinski is, he was like the advisor that never goes away, like Kissinger. Right, right. His, his daughter is now with CBS News. Mika or Minka or something like that. Yeah, right. Minka. Something. It's not a dog name, like a lap dog name. I don't know. Sorry, that's terrible. 
<laughs> yeah, but Ber Brzezinski was around, but he's like a Rockefeller front man. So he was always a CFR and writing these books. Yeah. And you yeah, can talk, yeah. And he, the chessboard itself has kind of an illuminated uh, reference to both that and the technotronic era, you know, kind yes. of kind of elite. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the, the chessboard is a, a sort of Masonic uh, uh, redo of what McKinder was simply calling the heartland. Gotcha. He just made it plain that the next, the last war and the last empire would be fought actually on land. And, and here's where I'm going with this. And this is why it's kind of disturbing that we're over in Afghanistan and, we, you know, 20 years and what have we gotten? We've been right. here long. Okay, fine. That's great. But you see, we're the interlopers. We are not land-based. Our protection has always been two oceans. But now we're going to go ahead and go across one ocean and try to uh, continue to uh, supply a fighting force over in mostly Afghanistan and Israel or whatever. Um, what Wikinder was saying was turn the globe around so that we're outliers and understand that whoever fights on the Eurasian continent doesn't need a Navy. Right. They can use the air and they can use the ground. This is not going to be a problem for them supply wise. We have the problem. So the thing is, is that we're not looking too good. And I would call this Custer's last mistake, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look good. The whole situation is a catastrophe, really. Well, and, and to harken another thing, I mean, take this for what it's worth. But I mean, um, the German Rosicrucians who uh, keep their place, and I think it is um, Quarrytown, Pennsylvania, they consider themselves the, the rightful heirs of the German Rosicrucians, who are the true Rosicrucians, as opposed to the Rosicrucians that are out on your coast, somewhere up, I don't know. San Jose. San Jose. All right, San Jose. So, so, the, so they're the old time. Um, they wrote a book that was um, ghosted by a name by Pruington. Uh, called the, the Menisus Chronicles. That would be Man Isis, okay? Now, I don't know if we talked about this at all, but the thing that struck me was they created a scenario where they said that the old world would finally um, wreak vengeance on the new world and, and basically kick its ass. Because remember something, we're a rental. We've always been a rental. That's all we are. That we are as strong as we are is, is, is as strong as we were allowed to be. And indeed, we are strong. But when Germany, when Britain started to lose its gas right around the Boer War, it was right at that time that Teddy Roosevelt let the uh, fleet go around the world and show everybody that we kicked their ass. Right. Okay. So the thing is, um, we're not looked on as being part of the old neighborhood. You know what I mean? We're, we're not in the state of rich people. We're just these like renegades that are on the outside that have to be dealt with sooner or later. That's what I got from the book, the Menisus Chronicles. And they said that we would be invaded. And um, the only thing that would stop the conflagration would be a geological event, uh, like tectonic plates shifting and such, where everybody would go back home. That's what they said. Now, also in 1913, in their 16th convocate, a book by um, 
I can't remember. There was a primary family there. I don't want to say it was Phelps. It was something else. But anyway, they um, they said that eventually Mexico would be brought back into like the womb, and then the um, uh, ascending uh, eye would be placed atop the pyramid, and things would be right as they were in the old days. So you got two things going here. You get a projection for a, a war that will kick America's ass and put us in place, and you've got uh, a Mexican intrusion into the United States, which would bring us back to the way we should be. And as they said, they would put the, the seeing eye could then be placed upon the the uh, pyramid. Right. So they've always been looking to kind of undercut American power. I guess is what one way to take that. Yeah, we were because uh, we're not part of that old system. No, really, we don't belong on the block. We we've been allowed to. I mean, look, I, I'm not for this against this, but I mean, I, I've seen the way we've been treated, and because we are military, military shoot, militarily strong, uh, we think that nobody can take a stand. But the point is, it isn't that. I mean, you know, you've heard about rigged fights. Well, this is going to be a rigged fight. I mean, how in the world could we not win the Korean War? How could we not win the Vietnam War? It's right. Crazy. It was. It was fought for gains um, commercially, and that's all. There, I mean, that's all it was to it. It wasn't about right and wrong and freedom and not. I mean, it was, it was just about there was money there, and uh, war made it uh, accessible. And even in the Civil War, going back to that, when you were talking to me earlier, you mentioned the, the Lincoln series I did. Um, it was clear that the North did not want the war to end as quickly as it did because they were making money as were Confederate officers, as were businessmen. They kept that thing going because they were making money for both sides. And the Vatican was wholly behind a slave uh, nation because, remember, they're the first slavers in the Western Hemisphere. They've never cared. The Vatican has never made moves against slavery. They've never, ever, you've never heard anybody from the Vatican be an anti-slave uh, person. That's their mentality, in my opinion. What, what people are, don't realize is that they're two-faced, okay? They have a, an ecclesiastical side to them, uh, and many of their clergy whom I very much adored. But be that as it may, they also have a political side, a political side that goes far, far back more than anyone realizes. I mean, they got involved in kicking back the Ottomans in like, 1542 in the Battle of Lepanto. You should just Google that. Right. Uh, the, the Vatican, frankly, told the Muslims, you know, you can do what you want, but don't ever, don't ever impinge upon us. Well, they got a little too big for their britches. They came into Eastern Europe, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, and such, and were moving in on the Vatican. The Vatican was like, okay, we can't do this. So they had a navy still, but they also called up a flotilla that involved other countries. One of the seamen happened to be Cervantes, if you remember that name. Right. And, yeah. and, they, and they kicked the, Muslim, the Ottomans' ass. That put them back where they were until probably World War One. Right. So, uh, yeah, so you still have that involvement. I mean, what do you – so – the old world doesn't like the new world, wants to undercut it. What's going to What do you think is going to happen next? Well, I think we understand what's going on right now. Um, and I'll be honest with you, um, I'm fearful. I, I, mean, I did the shows about what might be. 
uh, this was included in it. To be honest with you, I, I was hoping I'd be dead before that happened, but it looks like I'm going to be around for this one. The United States is getting undercut by a thousand slices. Um, the whole idea of the uh, illegal immigration was planned. You can read about that in Jean Respal, the Frenchman's book. Uh, oh, it was Camp of the Saints. A lot of these books that were considered science fiction were also considered futuristic. And you got to you got to figure out whether or not they knew something. I don't believe they, they pulled it out of their head or I think like Philip K. Dick and a lot of other science fiction writers, they were probably privy to stuff and they and they did it like Asimov's The Winnowing, which I think we're going through right now. Um, this this immigration that happened, we didn't get stupid about keeping people out. I got nothing against Mexicans or any Latinos, but the point is, is a front door to go through that everybody used. All right. Ross Bell's book talked about an overrunning of prosperous Western nations by third worlders. I think that's very interesting, and I paid attention to it. That was written in 75. Now, if I can digress for a second about Asimov's The Winnowing, do we ever talk about that? Do you know? What do you mean by The Winnowing? All right. Asimov wrote a short story that was included in a, in a collection of short stories, I think uh, entitled and whole Bicentennial Man. In about 75, Asimov wrote this very short, short story about scientists that were approached about altering the lipoprotein of grain so that some people who ate it would be killed. Some would be sickened and rebound. Some would be okay. Now think about COVID. All right. Okay. Now you got COVID, which none of us know how lethal it really is because the numbers have been, for the most part, rigged. Right. But the point is, is that you've got something that kills people, mostly the elderly and the weak. Uh, some people get sickened and they bounce back and the younger don't have anything really happen to them. When I read The Winnowing, I said to myself, that's a very clever way to depopulate. So when COVID came around, I thought to myself, despite the fact that it's a nasty virus, it's man-made, and it's doing what Asimov said the lipoprotein alteration was doing in his book. Do I think Asimov was for this? No. Do I think that he may have gotten inside information? Yes. So what I'm saying is, is that COVID-19 is a depopulator. It is an absolute culture changer across yes. the globe. And is worse than it is it really is and if anybody remembers they try to pull this off with sars back in around 2000 i don't know four or six can't remember but i did a show on it then and i did it off a of newsweek uh magazine i mean it was so funny that it looked like it was it was like bad magazine they had this nurse or this female on the front cover full face shot eyeballs absolutely agape mask on and across the top of what would be her head you know headdress it said sars and right so I, they tried all the fear they laid on the fear of death they tried to change stuff i don't remember it having that kind of effect as this no it fell on its face but it was a dry run and i shouldn't have known it and i and i did 
Right. Uh, Fauci's been around for 30 years. So these guys have perfected it. And a lot of these guys are, are part of the cartel. They come out of Pfizer and then go get on TV and sell vaccines. It's incredible. Like some of these people have to be tried. If there's justice in the world, there has to be kind of an independent court case, a bunch of, bunch of these people just shoving vaccines down your throat that well, don't really work and aren't that effective. There, look, there is enough justice in the world, so forget right, that. Yeah, and they'll never be tried. Fauci also was a big scaremonger in the whole HIV AIDS thing. Where they yes. never, they AZT. Make, yeah. AZT was super toxic, too. Yep. And they were giving it to babies. And that was a whole other fear element, too. I mean, uh, I think HIV was legit. Certain people died, but there it was within a certain uh, groups that really got affected by HIV, which is you know, intravenous drug users, homosexuals, et cetera. Sorry. But they, no, no, but they never made the connection that AIDS was caused by HIV. And, and the whole storm pulled away without making that conclusion uh, a fact. Um, but he was, but the point is he was there at that. Yeah. So he has year, decades of experience and how to uh, getting involved in social engineering, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I, I remember for all that I did, and, and I got into this just to find out the way things really were. I mean, I was a baby born in 51, uh, and I was around men who came back from World War II in Korea, and we're talking about a war and things done that I had never read about in my history books or heard about in my school. And that always bothered me. So it took to about, what, another 50 years for me to say, you know what, before I go, I'd like to find out what the real deal is. And I did. And it was more horrible than I thought it would be because things did not make sense to me then. But Americans are good people. They don't know what it is to be lost, you know, and they believe in their government because, oh, gee, our government doesn't propagandize us. And it does. And that's right. the thing you have to understand. You know, when you, when you wrote to me in an email, oh, you mean Fox doesn't tell the news, to tell the truth? Then they don't tell the truth. They all just give it from the left and right and keep everybody at their throats. Meanwhile, we get cut down time after time after time. You can't you can't rely on presidents. You can't rely on anybody in federal government. And you can't rely on the media. The only time the media gives you the straight stories is before they, they catch it. Just like what happened at 9-11. You know, the truth was told in the next 48 hours. And then it got all doctored up. Right. What it is today. Yeah, people said, hey, it looks like an explosion. Oh, this is it. There's explosions. People are making statements. And that all got covered up within, yeah, like you said, 48 hours. All those stories that came out, you know, were gone. Well, what I thought was interesting also was uh, when it came to alternative media, uh, Alex Jones and his ilk uh, just focused on New York because that was the big and bad thing. They didn't talk about D.C. They did not talk about Shanksville. And those two are the bigger stinkers that you've ever yeah. seen. I don't know if you've ever had Craig Ranke on your show from CIT. I should. Um, huh? I should. I should. Yeah, you should, because I tell you what, that child put his foot on the ground and talked to people. And you can see it on his website. And you can find, I mean, the bottom line with that is no plane hit that building whatsoever. Not even that supposed whatever that was, you know, a rocket or a small plane. That was CG, without a doubt. The Pentagon is ringed with video. Right. Okay, it's part of its protection system, and none of it was used. And they copped the, the video from um, outlying stores 
so that nobody could touch that. Um, that was a colossal, colossal farce. And so was uh, uh, Shanksville. Absolutely unbelievable. And if you want me to, I'll share a story with you. Please do. All right. I was I was riding my bike down here in Florida, and Vince um, <clears throat> Victor Thorne uh, called me up, the late Victor Thorne, and he said, "Listen, um, there was a woman who read our book, and what he meant by that was he made a book that was uh, three quarters based on our shows that we did on 9/11, because nobody was doing anything on 9/11 uh, on uh, uh, Flight 93." Right. And I'm like, okay, look, I'll, I'll get right home and we'll do a three-way because he didn't have the ability to do a three-way interview. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he goes, look, I, I don't know what's going to happen because as the woman was talking to me, they were an elderly couple. He said, the, I could hear the husband in the background going, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. So he didn't know there'd be a second take. Well, I'm still on my way back home. I get everything set up. She didn't answer the phone. They were, their names were Bob and Shirley. I forget their last names. I'd written it down. It's a piece of paper, long gone into the landfill. But what she had said was, and if you take a look at the map of southwestern Pennsylvania, there is Imgrund Mountain Road, I-M-G-R-U-N-D. And you can see that there are several switchbacks, which means it is a steep hill, okay? Mm-hmm. On what you would call the southeast side, is a bald spot that's been there since that day. I don't know. There's a bald spot there. But what, I'm, what I am saying is that she said that most people know that a plane went down on Ingram Mountain. The two of them drove up to see if they could reach it. And then the road was so rocky that they thought they may not be able to get out of there. So they only went a certain distance and then back down. But she said you could smell the fuel smelt a few all night. She said there were trucks going in and out of that area. She assumed they were taking pieces of the plane away. Do I believe that there were people in there? No, I believe it was a remote like everything else was. All right. So do I, yeah. Yeah. So she said that there was no doubt about the fact that the plane went down there. Um, She also said that the city of New Baltimore, which is on the southeast side of Ingram Mountain near the turnpike, was yellow taped off. And, and men in black suits were telling people to shut the hell up, okay? Um, and that also casts light on the fact that, you know, we heard all this stuff about Indian Lake Marina, how these people heard an explosion, and they went outside their houses, and they saw this stuff floating down. But just think of this. Nobody saw the plane go down except Lee Perbaugh, who said he saw it go down in that junkyard, um, where he worked and that was his first day okay if you take a look at that site i always wonder where do the 10 ton engines go right you know they're I mean? almost like, the things that always remain in those crashes is an intact engine they usually don't fall apart or atomize right and the same thing with, with, with the uh the pentagon craig said look he was craig craig talked to two cops that were at the pentagon at this famous sitco station and they asked them, did you see a plane? They said, yeah. And they said, we saw it on this side, meaning the left side of where they were. But that path of, of knockdown uh, lampposts and stuff was on the opposite side of that. So what they saw was something big and made to look commercially like a plane. 
but it never impacted the Pentagon. And nothing impacted the Pentagon. I mean, when you take a look at the first photos, you've got what? A, a, a two-car garage-sized door um, opening? Right. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah nothing. Can you look at your monitor? Is that Craig Ranke right there? Do you know what he looks like? No, I don't. So okay. I'll take the well, for it. Okay, well, he's on YouTube, so I don't know what that is. Craig, Craig Ranke. Craig is a straight shooter. I mean, once I just took liberty with with a um, a, a fact, and he called me on it, and I said, "Yeah, you're right. You're right." I mean, Craig is fastidious, but the thing you have to remember about the uh, the Pentagon too is that you supposedly have one of those planes going through three rings right. of the Pentagon, and then after the third ring is penetrated, there's no sign of a plane. So how does that happen? I mean, you get the softest part of the plane going in first. We have no signs of the engines. And after three rings are, and, and I might add, very perfectly um, blown, which would make you think that they're shape charges, you got no you got no remains of the plane after the third ring. So so what did this plane do? Go through three rings and disappear? I mean, it's just crazy. So, so the Pentagon and the Shanksville story, and the thing about the, Sh the Shanksville story is this. If you used only the Daily, um, the New York Times on 9-12 and 9-13, you'd find out how the stories conflict and how, how something has got to be wrong. 11 people saw whatever that was, Flight 93, descend slowly. And then one party said, I saw it goose up over a mountain ridge, like it had to be pulled up because otherwise it would have hit the ridge. Right. All right. None of them saw anything unusual about the cabin or cockpit. Edward Felt, who was the guy that was in the bathroom saying there was a bomb exploded. Well, guess what? If there was a bomb exploded, there'd be something streaming from the plane. The people on the ground saw nothing streaming. Okay. And, it, and by the way, if you're in a bathroom, in a plane, you're like in a Faraday cage inside a Faraday cage. The chances of him having any connection is, is, is false. So in other words, 11 people watched the plane descend. Two of them saw it go over the mountain, but none of them saw it crash. It did crash, but they didn't see it, and they saw nothing streaming from it. And you can read that yourself in, um, in the New York Times. So Felt's story was bogus. Also... Uh, Elizabeth Hirsch, was it Elizabeth? What was the last name of her? I can't. Remember. I don't. Rec I don't recollect. I don't know. All right, but the thing is, she was talking to her husband supposedly, as uh, he was telling her what was going on. But that's not possible either, because so. And then, well, here's what happened. She said it was on a cell phone. If you read the 912 New York Times, it was a cell phone. Jeremy Glick. I'm sorry, Jeremy. Glick. Jeremy Glick. That's right. And those cell phones didn't work from planes at that time, too. Well, 2001. That's right, because the technology was pointed downwards, not upwards. Right. And the second thing is they're going through zones so fast you can't hold on to a to a, a connection at all. The right. only time I was ever able to keep a connection going with a cell phone was when we were landing and we were below the towers. So anyway, she's talking about how this is going on and how she gets the police in on it. Like, what are they going to do in West Milford, New Jersey? However, in 2004 in a Reader's Digest with Oprah on the cover, uh, Elizabeth is revisited uh, to talk about that day. 
And parenthetically, and I'm saying this deliberately because it didn't sound like it was her vocabulary. It mm-hmm. seemed like it was implanted in. And she goes, oh, oh, and no, it wasn't a cell phone. It was a seatback phone. Right. All right. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't all of those so-called calls fake or had that element of staging to them? For even what was the other one that I think it was, what was the one? I think it was 93 and I think it was just 93, right? Those are the ones that all had kind of fake things. If I remember, it's been a while. No, it has been a while. And um, yeah, I mean, we supposedly had a phone call from, oh, I don't know, a woman that was a personality uh, on CNN or something like that. She was in the back of the. Right. I remember her. She's the one who hit the Pentagon, right? Yeah, but the thing is, is like that phone. That phone doesn't stretch that far. <laughs> I mean, the cords did not go that far. So, I mean, as much as I don't, well, yeah, she was like Ted, somebody's wife. Who, right? She was that lawyer's wife, if I remember. Right. So, the thing is, is that it is full of holes, and and when I'm contesting without going on anymore, and I could, even with Jamie McIntyre and his his first um, first two, I guess, uh, reportages of what he saw. Right. Right. I mean, they stay away from them because it, it's got the biggest amount of holes that you could find. Um, that's why everybody stays on the towers. Right. Yeah. No, it's a good point. Yeah. Very good point. Now, do you want to, if you want to do the towers, I'll tell you what. I yes. Do. Okay. Yes. There's a guy by the name of James Kosher, K-O-I-S-O-R. He was living in an apartment building in Jersey City, directly across from the towers. He was rehabilitating from uh, an operation. So it was a beautiful day. He goes downstairs to his friends and they're all yucking it up and stuff. And one of them leaves to go to work and calls back to the house and says, do you see what's going on across the street? And they weren't, they weren't looking. I mean, think, I mean, think what you may, here's the towers on fire and they're not, they're not watching. I mean, cause it's, the, it's there all the time. You know what I mean? So right. it's like, they don't even watch. And they take a look across and they see one of the towers in flames. Well, kosher goes ballistic because his wife is working at the empire state building. They're turning the radio on. Nobody knows what's going on. And he's begging his wife to get across the Hudson as fast as she can, because he expected that uh, the empire tower, uh, state building to be hit and he had reason to believe that right so here's where i'm going he sent me the raw video on a vhs of what happened that day he later on produced an, a dvd uh that was distilled down so i saw the first and i saw the second what he catches on the uh, video before you can see it you can hear something coming up from the south of the hudson and that would be the last plane that impacted. I guess that would be what the South. One seventy-five. One seventy-five hit the South Tower. Yeah. All right. So you can hear it before you see it. Now you can say it. You can say there were holograms. I don't care. All I know is that it sound. It had mass, and it put a hole in that building. And unfortunately, during that whole video, you could see people jumping out. Um, there were other explosions that took place throughout the building. Uh, all while this was going on. Um, he came to me. It was 10 years after that he had shot the video. And he said, listen, can you help me get this thing marketed? 
Now, I didn't make any money on it. I didn't care. I had him on. That's all I did, and I just saw what he had. I had no problem with it. When I saw people take pieces of it from the Facebook, they ridiculed it, but it was absolutely bullshit that they were talking about. I mean, it was it was obviously they were killing it. Um, I don't care, again, if it was holograms or not, but it was a plane. And, and what he said was, what was interesting, and I think you might remember comments made in all the videos that are on YouTube that the plane didn't look like a commercial plane. Right. Yes, I've heard that. All right. And he said this and he said he was he was exaggerating because he just couldn't come up with something better. He said that looks like a Cessna. That's what he says on the tape. But it can't be a Cessna. We realize it. But it wasn't the size of a commercial airplane. And I, you've heard probably that declaration from a worker of I don't know, from one of the airlines who was in the street in New York that day saying, but it doesn't look like a, you know, a, a 757. Right. It didn't have the markings, too. If I remember, it was mostly silver. So it didn't have the look of a commercial right. flying with the, you know, all of the painting and stuff like that. Well, that's what always struck me, too, because, I mean, the second plane impacting, it was just like, I don't know, would you call it like some kind of marine green or something like that? Kind of, yeah. Like yeah. an off-silver, yeah. Yeah, it didn't look like it. But the thing wasn't the size either. So there again, you have something going on there. And, and, right. and here's where I'm going with all this. Here's what happened. Groups formed groups. And they got into, well, was there a plane? Wasn't there a plane? Right. You know, I love Dave from Blint 9-11, but I tell you what, he's killed more interviews than the Lone Ranger. Honest to God. And it went on for years, too. Like, and that was the core. If you didn't believe this, then it was actually very illogical. But if you didn't believe this, everything else you said was nullified or right. yeah, gone. Right. That was right. the way I mean, you structured it, yeah, which is nonsense. And I asked people, and I, I did this with the Utikins for 9-11 Truth, and they, they agreed. They didn't, they just laid it out for people as to what happened. They didn't get into whether there were planes and no planes. If you want to lose an audience fast, who might be wanting to listen to you because they think maybe you're telling the truth, you tell them that there's no planes there, they're gone. Well, I can, just to interrupt, Keith, there was a woman on the ground at the second plane who was literally walking down the street, minding her own business, and a piece, this is a factual story, you can go find it, a piece of the landing gear flew out of the building of 175 and hit her and she became paralyzed. She had to go to the, I, I don't remember what the final outcome was, but she got hit really hard with a piece of the wreckage and you can go look that up. So if that factually happened, that means that either something real hit, it hit the tower or those, those floors had been set up with a fake thing that nobody saw and shot out through an explosion piece of a landing gear from some type of plane right which is exactly. the part is not believable and, and what happened was it, it, it was like uh uncle remus and um and the tar patch you know people come by and they get caught in this discussion and they never emerge from it right and the, the results of it most likely is oh it's all bullshit um and it's not because the United States has a history of allowing this to happen, and they did allow it to happen on that day. Now, I'll tell you another story I got from Tom Scott Walker, who was on twice. He's out there somewhere. I caught him just before he was moving out of Louisiana. But Tom Scott Walker was a uh, 
architectural photographer who was living up in Woodstock, New York, a place I know very well, uh, to work in the city. And he thinks he got invited to a seminar, if you will, by the Rockefellers. And the gist of this whole thing was the Rockefellers were pissed off because they were being told by the EPA that after years of the towers being up and buffeted 24-7, seriously, by trade winds that come up from the coast, that the building was being corrupted um, so that so that the, the, fulc the fulcrum or the friction point would be around the 10th or 12th floor. But the point was is that they were going to go down sooner or later. And Rockefeller they were full. They had to be refitted because they were full of asbestos, too, is my understanding. All right. Which but, would have been a massive cost. Right. So, so Rockefeller was like, no, we're not doing this. You know, I'm not paying for it to be deconstructed. So just keep that in mind. The other thing I would say to you is this. To lay in explosives or to do any kind of work on the towers was no worse than it was than 1962. When I think it was the threat of Hurricane Camille, I think it was Camille in 62. The thing was, they knew that a lot of the tall buildings there would be at risk. So what they did was they sent workmen into the core. Now, once you're in the core, you're not seen. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a sleet inside the building. Yeah. And they they went into that building, uh, whatever was there at the time. I don't know. The Empire State Building, the City Corp uh, building, perhaps. But they went in and shored up the internals of these buildings in anticipation of Camille, you know, kicking ass up there. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew they were there. My point is, and, and by the way, Camille did not uh, pose the threat they thought it would, but the buildings were still shored up and nobody knew about it. My point is, is with the towers, you could have people, all you got to have is just the uniform and the tag and you get in and once you're inside there, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, didn't they say that there were people reported, there were people around the towers before 9-11, that there were weird things, retrofitting or people back in. So some people had stated that, if I remember correctly. And I think there were pictures from before 9-11, sometime in that 2001 area of workmen taking pictures through there. So some of that became public. But yeah, I mean, it's a huge, pro it's a huge, massive you know, set of buildings. So it's not like a small seven foot story, seven foot tall, you know, seven story building. There's just tons of people through there. And then we can get to building seven, which doesn't fit into the narrative too. But the thing is, once you get inside the core, you're not seen. Right. That's workman area only. So it's not a big deal. And we're not talking about laying in bombs. We were talking about whatever they're using at the time, plastic or whatever. So it isn't like it's a, you know, there's any kind of logistical problem whatsoever. They could have been in there for a month or two more. It, it, it wouldn't have right. meant anything. They just they just disappear. And I mean, you, we're talking about two towers when about what five went down. Right. Yeah. There's more than those two. They always just say the twin towers, but there's a lot more going on. That whole complex was blown up. I think six had a huge hole in it. There's all kinds of things going on there. People, there's, I think one of those early, the Nade brothers videos after they filmed 9 11, uh, 11, plane 11 hitting the buildings, they did some other filming underneath the towers. And I'm pretty sure that there were, there were multiple explosions heard, if I remember correctly. I have to go back and listen to that. 
Well, they were. I mean, you can even see them to this day. I mean, I saved a lot of this video, which now is on a computer that no longer exists. So they're gone. But I mean, you had uh, Willie Morelli, I believe, who was a workman there. He was a real New York guy. And he was talking about being seven floors down in the shanty where they would dress for the work that day. And he says he was blown from one side of the building to the other. And they thought that something had fallen off some kind of dock down there. I mean, we, we would be absolutely amazed by what kind of activity goes on below ground in these towers. I mean, it's like a city unto itself. True. Yes, that's I mean, true. I've, I've been in some of them and it's uncomfortable, but it's it's amazing. Um, but the thing is, Morelli said, yeah, you know, he got blown from one side of the shanty to the other. And they heard that a plane hit up top. Well, I can understand him saying, okay, let me let me put two and two together. But the point is, is that whatever happened on the, you know, 140th floor or 70th floor would not knock him loopy seven floors down. Right. What, what that was about was blowing the towers off their moorings so they would not be connected to the ground any longer. But he didn't know. But you can still listen to him and what he had to say. So, I mean, again... The story of, about planes knocking down two towers is bogus. Totally bogus. Absolutely yeah. bogus. And there, I think there were firemen who, like, the, the yes. towers were going down, and they were running down the stairs, and yep. they got to, like, the fourth or second floor, and the, the, the towers literally, they looked up, and they weren't there. So they didn't collapse upon them like they should have with this force of, like, pancaking. Yeah. But they literally got to like the second or third floor and looked up through the stairwell and there was no building. Like, so something very strange happened that day. Well, I think, I think that was a uh, ladder company seven. If I remember when the guy goes and, and all this bullshit was boom, 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 you know, all that stuff. Right. So yeah. Again, right. They know something was going on. And, and when they showed some of the street scenes uh, from the tower, you know, flat on the, on the, uh, on, on the Avenue, um, they didn't include the sound because, because the sound gave away, that it was a precursor to the collapse. In other words, all you see is the collapse. You don't hear the booms. And that's what the, that's what the firemen were talking about. And I mean, I had on, um, what was his name? William, uh, or you remember that one? William, I don't know which one. I've, I listened to a lot of your, a lot of your shows, but I can't remember the individual ones. But I remember listening to a lot of 9-11 stuff. The Uticans for 9-11 Truth. I remember very well listening to them. Yeah, the guy came on who, uh, here's what happened. This guy comes on, um, Alex Jones. But Alex steps on him so much, I can't hear this guy answer questions in full. Right. And, and as I'm sitting there, and I don't mean to bang on Alex. I mean, I think he sucks and I think he's part of the problem. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I mean, also, his interview style is terrible. He talks over his guests constantly. Yeah, all the time. You remember the name, huh? William, William what? Okay. Well, the mind's a terrible thing to lose. But, but anyway. Um, so there's a William on your, formerly on your show. Uh, yeah, he was on. I'm like, I got to talk to this guy. I mean, I can't listen to this. This is like, you know, just a bad interview. And I called him up and I had him on. And he was on like two, three times. And he was talking about what was going on there. He's out of, he was out of Pennsylvania. He was called out the second day. And they amassed 
at Caden Point or somewhere near Staten Island, uh, Liberty Island, to be brought in when they finally could clear away enough crap to let other uh, EMT units come in. And it was he that said, you know, I looked at I looked at firemen that were talking to men in suits and turned absolutely white. He said, so they were, to, and, and here's where I want to go with this also. With that story about Bob and Shirley in New Baltimore, mm-hmm. New Baltimore being the city southeast of um, of uh, the crash site and right near the Pennsylvania Turnpike, um, they said that the people were being talked to and just told basically shut up. So, I mean, don't don't think that the suits weren't there and enforcing, you know, the edict. Right. Um, and that's why, you know, poor old Bob probably didn't allow Shirley to come on the second time. And I'm sorry, because I never got a chance to talk to her or record that. And I mean, that you know, again, that sounds like bullshit. Like, uh, you know, like it never happened, but it did. I mean, for, uh, for Victor to call me up and say, listen, where are you? Can you help me out? And I'm like, yeah, all right, I can. And I just stopped my bike and rode back home. And we couldn't get it done. And she wouldn't talk again. He did definitely write a story on it with pseudonyms. But the point of the matter is, is that people know that nothing dumped, nothing dumped uh, at the 9-11 Shanksville site. Nothing. Yeah, it's incredible. And wasn't Victor Thorne up there? Wasn't he in Pennsylvania in that area? Well, he, Victor and Lisa lived in, in uh, near State College, which was pretty much dead center of Pennsylvania. Gotcha. Um, but they were able to, uh, you know, pretty much take off, in, you know, in, in a minute. And they went down there. Um, I looked on Google and and I looked at it. If you look at Ingram Mountain Road and you do follow it to its apex, and of course you're looking at 2D, so it's it's you gotta not use your imagination, but you gotta make some exceptions. And you can see that there is a scar on the southeast side of what would be the peak. Um, it's still there. It was there in 2001, it's still there to this day, whether it was a burn, which I would assume it was, or whatever. Uh, it still exists. Nothing else does. Yeah, and it's crazy. Victor Thorne died, decided to kill himself right during Hillary Clinton's campaign for the presidency, right? I don't know when he did it. Um, I only know that he did do it. And I'll only say this. Uh, I enjoyed working with Victor. He was thorough. Uh, I did not know him to be um, at all um, playing fast and loose with the truth, but I also know he had some monsters. He did. Uh, yeah. Not you his know. real name either. I mean, yeah, so that's a loss. He wrote a ton of books. I know that he was doing a lot of trying to do, you know, honest research. So that's, yes, uh, he, he did. In fact, I'll tell you what, when you talk about the old days of this whole uh, 9-11 stuff, I only came into it in 2002. Uh, Harry and I started our show in March of 2002. I started to get interested in the fall of 2001, even before uh, 9-11, but not really to a point where I wanted to do anything about it. Uh, as I said, I was visiting friends uh, on September 11th in 2001, um, and I just I just looked at the collapse you know, at, at my mother's friend's house, and I said, it looks like a controlled demo. I mean, that's it. You know, and I went home and then the next day, yeah, it was the next day. It was a Sunday. The New York Times comes out with all these schematics and these great stories. And I'm like, how in the world can you know what the hell happened 
when the National Transportation Safety Board takes about three weeks to say boo. You know what I mean? They had it all set up, and I'm like, that's not right. And I got a friend that was flying for Continental, you know, and I mean, he's my best friend. If, if I did not know him all my life, he might not have been tolerant of me, but he had to admit it was a little strange. But I didn't do anything with it. In fact, the next, I, I flew out on the very first flight that was released from, Tampa, uh, from Newark to Tampa. And they were like, I tell you what, there were cops all over the place with German shepherds and everything. I mean, it was like being in like East Germany, 1951. So, I mean, I look at a friend of mine, I'm going, I'm going to suppose this is probably the safest day to fly the whole year. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Probably after that. I remember flying in October of 2001. It was very safe. When we landed, everybody clapped. So that was, uh, you know, something else. I mean, it's just incredible. You did so much work. Where can, do you know where people can find your old 9-11 shows? Because I think the Alembic files or, or something is still collected online, right? I never put up one of them. Other people did. I didn't stop them. They didn't ask for permission. They don't have to because I was out in public domain. So I wasn't going to get like that. Um, whatever is out there is out there. That's all I know. I mean, even to this day, and I will tell you, like yesterday, I got a file sent to me that I did with Dave McGowan uh, in back a program to kill. And I had yeah, I had no idea. I, um, I gave my um, archives to my former uh, webmaster who succeeded uh, Angie, who was absolutely outstanding. So, um, and I've lost contact. So I don't, I never know what's out there. You had Thinkerbee, Eaton, you had a lot. Your domain is still available right now, Thinkerbee, Eaton. But I remember all that stuff, you know, because I was, I was definitely a listener. Well, I, apparently, hit one of these. Apparently, I got like 470 some up on Radio for All. Radio for All, that's right. I think it's there. Yeah. I don't know that they're active, though. No, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate. You know, I, I got lost for a point there where I did some occult shows and stuff like that, which I just felt I had to do just because, you know, it was it was a buffet. And I realized my heart wasn't in it. And I really didn't like these people. And what it came down to was um, when I went back to the podcast, I got serious about this. And I mean, I know we're running out of time. But I mean, whether you like to hear this or not, William, I mean, Go ahead. not you, but you know, your listeners. Um, it made me understand the Bible was true and that we are headed for a very rocky time. We are now into it. I thought it would have been militarily instigated, but they use COVID to do it. They've got people scared and running. They've got them in clutches, like you see in Twilight Zone, where they hate the people who have the light. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and I realize now that uh, this is the time, being a chicken at heart, that I would have liked to have missed. But apparently I'm not going to, unless my ticker gives out sooner than I expect, which I'll be completely fine with. But I mean, they're at the door now. We've been promised by depopulationists and Satan's minions about bringing to the people a new feudalism. Uh, you can read um, the uh, who's the playwright? Oh man, George uh, George Bernard Shaw. Yes, if you remember that unbelievable unbelievable quote 
about you will be fed and you'll be clothed. And if you cannot live in that, you know, you'll be killed in a kindly manner. Right. No, he's a total eugenicist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, if people are going to take notes, you can go to Galton, G-A-L-T-O-N dot org. And you can hit on a seminar. I, I don't have it up in front of me. You can hit on a seminar uh, in which H.G. Wells and Galton kind of go back and forth. And it's really chilling because for the most part, H.G. Wells, who we always look at as a, you know, a pretty groovy uh, uh, sci-fi uh, writer, right, says, listen, we'll do what the Romans do. We'll kill the hindmost. So frankly, if you're not up the snuff coming out of the, the uterine uh, canal, um, they'll just kill you because they just don't want to bother with you. Right. I mean, do you know that George Bernard Shaw was one of the persons who first talked about the use of a gas chamber? No, I don't. Yeah, here, can I, I'll read you this quote. A part of eugenic politics would finally land us in extensive use of the lethal chamber. A great many people would have to be put out of existence simply because it wastes other people's time to look after them. That's George Bernard Shaw, lecture to the Eugenics Education Society, reported in the Daily Express, March 4th, 1910. Yeah, I mean, and that's why it, 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 it resonates so much more with me now. I mean, you hear these personages that pop up from uh, from Europe, like Schwab and stuff, and it's the same stuff. Right. It's like it's never gone away. I mean, these people, even the royals of Europe, who we look at as buffoonery, are not buffoonery. They they think they're Merovingians and they're in the line of Christ. And yeah, they're they, in the line of David, right? There you go. There you go. And, and the fact is, is that they know what's best. And I'll tell you what, truthfully, it's, it is the old Roman Empire uh, kept intact. And they are going to rise up again when the time is right. And that time is happening now. Um, and the, I mean, when I see the commercials that are out there now, I mean, it's absolutely chilling uh, what they're promoting. And, um, and we're headed for that period. So, I mean, in our school districts, with, with the, it takes a village to raise a child, which always gave me the creeps and rightfully so. I mean, what you're looking at, you know, if people were to look at the, at the 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto, you'd find out that like nine of them have already been right. inculcated here. Right. And it's for a reason. I mean, it's, it's not anything about, you know, Russians or anything like that. It's got to do with control. And these people for centuries have promised us a new feudalism. And that's where we're headed. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to Crowley talking about people with the quiet wisdom of the cattle, talking about he's a neo-feudalist, aristocracy, whatever word he used. Not an aristocracy, but a aristo something. But yeah, so he's using these words like, yeah, I want an aristocratic revolution, you know, against. Well, even if you're really Plato in the Republic, I mean, what he says is that, you know, the children have to be separated from the parents and brought out into the countryside and taught by the philosopher kings. So there's always that element out there and it's here again. And that's because it comes from the dark side and it will stay until the time comes when, when Christ will return. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm so out of the loop these days is because I spend whatever time I do pretty much in the Bible because, um, it, because I see it completely as the truth. And, um, I see it so, so much so as a salve to uh, the wounds that we collect living in today's society. Because, I mean, I wake up some mornings and I, have, I look outside and go, like, who are these people? So, right. yeah. I mean, 
It's I mean, getting nastier and nastier. I mean, it's pretty nasty when I was younger. Now it's super nasty. If you say the wrong thing, they'll come after your job, your livelihood. It's bad. It's like well, uh, body snatchers, invasion of the body snatchers now. Well, the, well, the problem is, and, and, and there's another thing. Orwell told us this was coming. When Orwell wrote 1984, um, he knew exactly what was happening. Orwell was sitting at the same table as the Fabians and others uh, in what would be a social engineering. And if you read 1984, which should be taught in poli-sci and not in English, right. um, you'd realize that what he was telling us was true. I mean, changing changing the past. Uh, Destroying it, yeah. You know, Destroying language, everything. It's all there. Yeah. So it's, so it, you know, it has happened. I, I consider uh, Orwell or Eric Blair a good guy. Huxley, somewhat. But the two of them together kind of fill in a lot of gaps as to what's happening now. And then when you look at other books, and I want to tell you that my getting started on this had a lot to do with going to a graduate program up in Goddard College. And my my thesis was uh, science fiction writers of the mid 50s and why they predicted as much gloom for the coming century as they did. Well, I tell you what, I think I it, it didn't make for great reading, but it was certainly right on the head. Right. Prescient. Yeah, absolutely. We're, it's grim. Look at the look at the news today. Look at the corporate media. It's literally trying to kill you with misinformation. It's literally trying to kill people during COVID and all this other stuff. I mean, it's just incredible. Like you would think that your tax dollars or something would go to something else, but nope, you don't get that. I mean, I got a couple of questions for you. One is you've had so many great guests like Dave McGowan, Alan Watt, who recently passed away, which is a loss. Uh, a lot of people don't know the name of Alan Watt, yeah. uh, which is a loss because he was really the one of the first people who was talking about kind of the scientific dictatorship and the, the eugenicists and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about Alan Watt? Uh, we both. I, I will miss Dave McGowan forever. Yeah, yeah, me too. I wish uh, he was here. He just he's just an excellent researcher and, and had a what I love about people is when they have a self-deprecating sense of humor. I think that's so great, you know, that they don't take themselves seriously. Um, and he was a personality. And I mean, it's I'm not gonna tell you there's not a day that goes by. There's probably not a week that goes by that I don't think about it. In fact, somebody sent me just two days ago a video, uh, an audio of me and uh, um, and him doing a program to kill. Alan Watt was besmirched because he supposedly ripped off somebody else's research. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'll only speak to Alan as a person that was good with his time and a straight shooter. And yes, he was uh, very, very interesting to uh, discuss things with. And we had a pretty good thing going. I'll also tell you that... Um, Real favorites of mine were, um, uh, oh man, brains well, th horrible. Think, think about it, because Alan Watt also was one of the first pre-internet guys. I think that he was writing his manuals and his scripts and printing them out through a printer. So he was very much kind of like a pre-internet pamphleteer. So he was really trying to get the word out. So I think he just died this year. I, I don't think he was. I think he was, you know, in his in his older years but uh yeah i used to listen i went through a phase where i listened to him all the time like i i learned from him what i needed to learn and kind of moved on well he, he was a very gracious guest and of course he had you know the brogue which makes him easy to listen to 
and um, he was he was always there for me, and I had no problem with him whatsoever. Uh, Andrew Colvin was another one. Uh, we did a series of one year. We did every one. Uh, this is the month that was, which is based off an English show. This is the week that was, uh, and that was a big deal. And also, oh my God, I feel so bad about this. Uh, Gordon Comstock. I used to listen to you and Comstock oh, all the time. Gordy, yeah, Gordon, definitely without without a problem. Yes, yeah. and Eric, Eric the blacksmith. Yeah, you had uh, some good ones, and I did that show with uh, about Hollywood. We talked about Hitler too. His name was I can't remember now. See, my memory is not that good at all. <laughs> also, Adam Go Rightly. Adam Go Rightly, yeah. I just talked to him this year. He just published a new book. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, he did. He, he put out a movie also. <laughs> nice. cool. He's busy. Um, but he, he did something that was really interesting. Uh, oh, I, I see what's out there. Dude, my wife's showing me what's out there on YouTube. That's scary. Yeah, I'm trying to find it. Daniel Benkowski. Benkowski, yeah. I remember Benkowski. He was kind of, he wasn't he a magic, uh, a literal like uh, yeah. magician or something like that? Yeah, something to that extent. Yeah, he yeah. Uh, he was. Um, but but I have to tell you also, um, I'm just looking at this now, and Joanne showed this to me. I did, I think, the only existing interview with James Montgomery. I hey, did, James Montgomery, you talk of reference him all the time too, right? Or far from yeah. I, I did a two-hour and 28-minute interview with uh, the informer who has passed away and Montgomery. Montgomery was really uh, audio shy. He really didn't want to do anything. Um, mostly, we just interviewed. Uh, we, we just emailed, but he did come out for this interview. Montgomery was um, a little less emotional than the informer. And I, I tended to kind of lean toward Montgomery about and this has got to do with the truths of America and all that other stuff. Um, so anyway, uh, Larry, Larry, the contractor, was that right? Larry, the contractor, yeah, Larry, Larry, the contractor guy. Yeah, that's what I did the show. Yeah. 12 episodes on Nazism. That's right. Um, and then I, you know, I, I, I did a lot of books because I worked in a library and I saw some books that were going to get thrown out. They were donations. And I'm, and this is the reason why the word doesn't get out. And, and it's because, they are what they are. I mean, they're, they're a little bit, you know, to the left of right or whatever you want to call it. And um, uh, they don't make it into the stacks. But I took them and I did shows on them. One of them was The Ominous Parallels by Leonard Peikoff, who was a professor at Hunter College. I mean, and he called it right on the money. He wrote a book in uh, 1982, uh, The Ominous Parallels, The End of Freedom in America. And he, and he likened our culture to the Nazi culture because you can you can substitute the word Nazism for statism, okay? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say this much, okay? I have no problem living in the United States. I have no angst against it. I have no powerful feelings one way or the other. This is where I was born. This is where I pay taxes. This is where I lived. But this culture is turning fashionable. And they use COVID to do it. Now, you can imagine what it's like, you know, in a twilight zone, if they find out one of you aren't vaccinated, you're going to get stoned on, you know, on the city's uh, fringes. Um, that's what it's about. Patriotism is statism. And it's unthinking. It's just reacting. And that's what, Co um, what Peacock was, was trying to say in the end of freedom in America, the anonymous parallels. 
it doesn't take much to get people to start to turn like a bunch of starved dogs. And I see that happening here. And the one thing that really upsets me is like, as you know, I mean, I played ball for a lot of years. I was a coach, as an umpire. Um, I like athletics because it was a release. But in today's day and age, all these shows that are, that are out there are really rotting uh, social change. And I don't mind that athletes have opinions and I don't mind that talking heads have opinions socially. But you know what? When I'm watching sports, I want to watch sports. You guys have enough platforms to do your thing elsewhere. But this is a very insidious conveyor of culture, what's going on right now. Yes. And it's happening with sports and entertainment. Yeah, it is. It's all politicized. Everything's politicized. The numbers are politicized. Everything. It should really scare the living daylights out of people. We're not that free. We talk about the land of the free, home of the brave. That should not. That should just be stripped. That axiom should be stripped away from this country permanently because it does not apply. We're very little freedoms left. And it's definitely not the home of the brave, in my opinion. And the, I, I agree with you. And, and the thing is, they'll make the people want it. That's the whole thing. And that they're being manipulated into wanting this. You know, that's why I always said a democracy. Well, you know this yourself. Democracy is a bad word. I mean, it's it's it's, yeah, it's not positive. Yeah. yeah. So all you have to do is get the, the mob on your side. And if you get them on your side, you'll have the um, the. The, the, the critical mass to get what you want done and you'll call it freedom and it's not freedom it's not freedom no. in the fact democracy is not freedom yeah well the more people talk about freedom you, you can guess one thing the less you get right i totally 100 percent agree with that and when when they talk about democracy uh and they do it now in this context it really is about mobocracy we're in the country in its founding was not democratic it is a representative no it was a republican no. so they were afraid of democracy they wrote about it all the time and so all the old greek philosophers as well were afraid of the mob so uh well, when they right. talk about it today the mob is ruling a lot of stuff a lot of these like chauvin or whatever i, I what he did was bad but he didn't i don't think he intentionally murdered that guy who was on drugs and uh I think the, the the force of the mob influenced the proceedings in a negative way. And, uh, you know, I feel well, sorry for George Floyd. I feel sorry for Chauvin, too. Well, the, the thing is, is that they don't, this is not coming by uh, happenstance. Um, it's being orchestrated, and every opportunity that, that presents itself, because they always do, it's being manipulated in a certain way. I mean, you know, and I'm sorry, you can call me racist if you want to. I'm just observing this but i mean i'm looking at tv now and if if you came from mars and we're watching tv you'd think that like three quarters of the country was black yeah that's true i mean you know if, if that rubs up your back you know fine i mean all i'm saying is that i was alive for the 60s and i know how bad things were there and they were bad but the jim crow days were over and it's after a while it's like if you're not going to get it done with all the bricks that are still out there since affirmative action and i know this like I said, it's got to piss people off. It's like, well, what do you want? I mean, you can have 7,000 out of 8,000 actors on TV being black. That's not going to help the black population. You know what I mean? It's going to help the 7,000 actors who are black. So, I mean, it's if, if it ain't fixed, it ain't going to get fixed. And as much as we say about our country that we're together, we're not together. No, we're not. It's not together. You know? 
So it's kind of the future is going to be very grim. The next uh, couple of decades, I, I'm about as opposite of optimistic you can imagine. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, bro. Yeah, I mean, you have children. I don't. It's only uh, I and my wife. But what I see happening now, I, I, it, it's not look anything that media does, and media is bought out to by the same people who run the politicians. Right. All right. Right. All they are, I mean, people get pissed off about Biden. I couldn't care less. He stinks. Bush stank. Obama stank. It doesn't matter. All they are are script readers. Um, if this country is going to go socialism, they need a Democrat. So they're going to use somebody. Joe Biden in Pennsylvania is an absolute laughing stock. This guy's got his hands on more girls' tits than you've ever seen. I'm, I'm serious. Go look on, on, on YouTube. I mean, it's just a, a joke. Do I care about him? No. Did I care about Clinton? No. Another liar. But these are the people that are put up there to sell the script. That's what they are. They're salespeople. And so the whole idea of, of Democrat and Republican is strictly to keep people at each other's throats. And it's never been worse than it is now. Yep. And in the meantime, we go down the tubes. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's not looking good. I mean, oh. it's not. What I mean, do you have a, a so much experience and wisdom with all your shows and all that writing when you're going back and looking through the Bible now can you share kind of what your conclusions are I mean you I know that you're a Christian but like in concurrent times in my life I go back to the Bible and I go oh my gosh this is true this is true I didn't understand that yeah I mean do you have those kind of moments how without a doubt I mean when we first began the show I really didn't want to do a lot of cult stuff, but people seem to really like it, you know, and I, I get it because it's like spooky and stuff like that. Um, but I wanted to get away from it. And then uh, Harry said to me, you know, we're getting too churchy. And I'm like, well, you know, that's the way it is. And I'm not going to say that led to our splitting, but I still realized more and more that what I was seeing about the New World Order is congruent with uh Satan's takeover of, of a planet for whatever period of time. And so I, I, you know, I have no problem whatsoever. I mean, people aren't deep into the Bible. I mean, if you only read the new Testament, I think you'd understand exactly what's going on. And, and I, you know, in the way I didn't, and then I did, and I'm like, and that's when I turned the show to being, you know, pro Bible. I mean, look, there are a lot of biblical, comment out there all right but here's the one thing get yourself a tyndall a kjv or or geneva bible and read it don't let anybody tell you what the bible says you read it for yourself what will take care of the rest and so yes william i mean to be honest with you right now i'm in that stage now where i'm nesting with the bible because my time has come and it ain't good yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, man. I mean, you've just done such great work, and you know, I, I really appreciate that. What uh, you know, what do you look like for you as far as like where can people reach out to you? Do you have social media? Is there something like a website? Or, I mean, I know that you're kind of still chatting with some of your old pals, right? Yeah, I mean, all I use is email, and uh, since you brought this up, I'm going to lay it on you. If anybody wants to get to me. They should, they should email you. <laughs> That's fine. Because I, I get a lot of emails. So you can send it to me, William Ramsey investigates at gmail.com, and I will forward it to Keith. 
if anybody wants yeah, uh, um, to reach out to him. I mean, we're at 90 minutes. I'll let you go. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap up this discussion about really interesting talk, topics, 9-11, false flags? Pretty much the whole, all the truth is a lie. That's pretty much what it comes down to. If you want to find the truth, you're going to have to go beyond uh, what's out there as far as history books, textbooks. I mean, we've been propagandized pretty well as much as we make fun of countries as such as Russia and North Korea. Everybody works their people, and so do we. We're no different in that matter. If there's anything that we've had is, is prosperity and, it's been, and more freedom, there's no two ways about it. But they're shrinking, and the whole idea of what's going on now is to make all the countries the same. We're all going to be treated equally and equally as dogs. And that's all there is to it. Until Christ comes again, um, we're going to see the, the hard side of life. And, uh, and I'm sorry, but there's, yeah. there's no two things around. The cavalry income is saved this time. Yeah, it'll only be on the return of Jesus Christ. So, again, it's the great Visigoth. Go check out his stuff. I put the, I'll put the link to radioforall.net. And I also know a couple places on YouTube that uploaded a lot of your old stuff, too. So I'll put these in the show notes. And if anybody wants to reach out to Keith, they can send me an email. But, uh, Keith, thanks so much for your time, man. I really appreciate you. I appreciate your work, too. Listen, I I appreciate the fact that you were uh, as ambitious as you were to get me back on. Um, I didn't mean to be like that, but I got like a little situation here. And, and secondly, sure. I do know that, honestly, I know that you were grateful for me putting you on in the early days. Definitely. And I, you know, and I like talking to you. So, yeah, likewise, man. It's great, great to be with you and talk with you again. And uh, persistence pays off. You know, I'm, de I'm determined. That's why I get these guests. They just give in. They just give up after I send, send them email after email. They don't have a choice. Hey, if I go on, he'll go away. That's kind of so it's worked for me. But uh, great. Thanks so much, Keith. Take care. Have a great day. All right, brother. Best to you. Don't, don't, don't. Yeah, thanks. Don't, don't hang up. Don't go anywhere.